Good morning, everybody. It is, try that again. Good morning, everybody. That's better. I, was, I, know, I, I know I hear you out there. I see you, but now I hear you. It's so good to be here, and I certainly want to take this moment to express my appreciation to the elders and showing their confidence in me and inviting me to fill in for Randy, who's gone this morning. Also, I want to express mine and Tammy's appreciation to all of you for accepting us here in such a wonderful, welcoming fashion. We found home, and I appreciate that. Thank you so much for that. I want to tell you just a minute, I say this about Randy. He is also one who is very special. If you haven't hugged him lately and told him thank you, well, you need to do that. I said that once before about another preacher at another congregation, and I came, you know, after he came back the next week, and everybody did what I asked, come up to me. He said, you must have really had a lousy lesson that day. Everybody's really appreciating me this morning. Well, that's not the case with Randy. He is an exceptional preacher, and Pippin Congregation is lucky to have him. And I won't, tell, I won't say anything behind somebody's back that I won't say in front of their back. So if you haven't hugged an elder lately, you ought to do that too and tell them you appreciate them. They're the ones that watch for your soul and tell them what you think about that. This morning we're going to be talking about a subject and I, I'm so, I, I couldn't have coordinated this with Jonathan any better than to follow the World Video Bible School lesson on the ark. You know, there's some of the controversy about such things. Well, how do we know that that's true? And, you know, some people think, well, we've just got to take that by faith, which is a true statement, but we've got to understand what we're saying when we use those words. This morning, we're going to be talking about the Holy Bible, Book Divine. And as I'm, again, with being new... Well, I'm just going to say we've been moving over the past three days in U-Haul and doing everything ourselves. So the butterflies that I normally have as, as I, I speak to a congregation for the first time, they're also wore out. They're just kind of sitting over there in the tree, and they're not bothering me this morning too much. But with technology and other things, I'm going to be trying to figure out how to work things, and I'm pushing the buttons. Oh, there we go. I can do it now. There we go. I have to point it right at where I need to point it. Good. Holy Bible, book divine. Let's go. The Bible, the Word of God. We understand, you know, as Christians with the scripture that was reading, read this morning in our, in our presence, we understand where the Bible comes from. But how do we teach others to accept what we know as truth? How is it that we, maybe in our own faith, and I'm using that word again, how do we bolster that faith, that confidence, that assuredness that when this life is over, angels wait to escort us to a place called paradise where we wait for the judgment to come? How is it that we understand when the trump sounds that every living creature in the world will hear and we who are alive will be changed in the twinkling of an eye to meet the Lord in the air. The dead in Christ shall rise. How do we know those things will happen? That's what this lesson is all about. We can know. We know that the Bible is inerrant. That means without error. We know that the Bible is coming. 
<laughs> I'm going to leave it like that. It's all sufficient. You remember the words of 2 Peter 1.3, according to his divine power, hath given to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. If God has given to us all things that pertain to life, sun came up this morning, O2 concentrations, 21%. We breathe that in. Our body's designed and created in such a fashion as to use that oxygen. We take in nourishment, food that's produced in our world. All those physical things God has put in place. And not only just those things that are about life, but also godliness. How do I live a godly life right with God? He's given to us in the pages of the Bible. As read this morning, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. From the Greek, God breathed. Because that is the case, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction in righteousness. The outcome, the man of God may be perfect. Now that doesn't mean sinless. It means complete with our obedience to Christ, us walking in the light as he's in the light. His blood continually cleanses us from every sin. Now that doesn't mean we can go out and live like heathen. doesn't mean that we can go out and commit sin or live in sin and expect to go to heaven. But if we are walking in the light as he is in the light, we know heaven awaits us. The outcome, we might be perfectly furnished unto all good works. The Bible, the Word of God, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Let me ask you a question. When you stood in the, in the, in the bathroom this morning, looking at yourself in the mirror, and you were brushing your teeth, did you have authority from God to brush your teeth? I'm pausing for a purpose. Did you have authority this morning to do that? If you say no, then it was sin. Think about that. When you stood in the bathroom brushing your teeth this morning, if you didn't have authority from God to do that, it was sin. Now, that's an entirely different lesson, and I'm going to put that one away because I'm going, I promised Tammy I wouldn't chase too many rabbits this morning. If it's not something that's within God's authority, if it's outside God's authority, it's sin. And I'll give you the, the punchline. We are supposed to take care of our bodies. That's part of taking care of our bodies. Therefore, yes, we have authority from God to brush our teeth in the morning. Also so happens that I manage a dental office and it didn't even occur to me until just then, but I've used that line in places in various different parts of the world, but we have to think about these things. Prove all things. Prove all things. Can you prove that God exists? Can you prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Can you prove that the Bible is the Word of God? Can you prove that heaven exists? Can you prove that hell exists? If you're thinking no, then we need to study. If you're thinking yes, we can, 
oh my, that sounds like something out of the previous election. Yes, we can. We can. And not only we can, but we must prove all things. That is a command from God to us. Can we prove God exists? Absolutely so. Jesus is deity. Yes, I can prove that. You should be able to also. Is the Bible the word of God? We're going to find out in this lesson. In 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Does that command us to give everybody a, a Bible answer to any Bible question that they ask on the spot? No. I can't do that. Randy can't do that. Your elders can't do that. Our elders. Excuse me. I'm part of this congregation now too. Feels good. No, we can't. And nor should we have to. This verse doesn't command that. It says you should be able to give a reason for your hope. What do we hope for? We'll talk about that later in the lesson as well. In our time, you know as well as I do, there are many scoffers. The atheist is somebody who says God does not exist. There's also the agnostic who says, well, considering God, I don't know. There's not enough. Well, I'll use the word evidence. How about the skeptic who just says, I doubt it? Or what the church is plagued with even more than anything from within today, the modernist who says, yes, I know what the Bible says, but. And he wants to make a fairy tale out of Noah's Ark. He wants to make some kind of a myth out of the creation account we read in Genesis chapter 1. And that Jesus said in so many words that God created the world in six days. You know, if that's not true, then Jesus Christ was a liar. He's not the Christ. We're still in our sins, and there's no hope for us. That's the ramification of the things that we're talking about this morning. As we continue, got off the wrong button. One more. I'm going to figure this out before the lesson's over. We must emphasize that when one puts himself into the position of rejecting Christianity, he makes himself an infidel. That's an unbeliever. That's somebody who is lost. That's somebody who has no hope. Without repentance, without coming to understand the truth, which, of course, hopefully leads to repentance, he has no hope whatsoever. One more. We must, as Christians, be able to do these things that I just talked about. We must prove the existence of God. We must prove that Jesus is deity. We must prove that the Bible is the word of God. And in doing so, well, that's again what this lesson is. We need to understand that God is concerned about evidence. How do you prove something? Well, you offer evidence. The courtroom, the judge sitting, the jury's in their seats, witnesses are called, they're examined. The Prosecution puts forth their case. The defense then has the ability to cross-examine. And the jury weighs in the balance the evidence that's given. And then they render their verdict based on the evidence that is given to them. We must be concerned about evidence. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because God's concerned about evidence. I got off that button again. 
We're going to go the right way from now on. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, you know the verse as well as I do. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Notice this next two words. The evidence of things not seen. Faith. Where does faith come from? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing the word of God. Well, this is faith, and it that which comes from hearing the word of God is the substance, that which stands under, literally, things hoped for. What do we hope for? I don't know about you. Yeah, I do too. You're all Christians, and I know what you hope for. You hope for a heavenly home. You hope for a place with God throughout all eternity. Those are the things that are within the veil, that which Jesus rent the veil between the holy place and the most holy place, the church and heaven, and offered that way of entrance into that blessed place that we hope to have for all eternity. The evidence, though, is for those things unseen. What evidence are we talking about? And that's what this lesson is all about. In the next few minutes we're together, we're going to briefly scratch the very tip of the iceberg of the evidence that we know that the Bible is the Word of God. Why do we know that? Because, first of all, man didn't write it. I want you to think about some things with me this morning. Pressing the right button. Man didn't write it. Well, it's man would not write a book that condemns himself. The atheist didn't write it. Genesis 1:1, God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Would an atheist write that? In Psalm 95, the whole 11 verses. Such a beautiful psalm. I'll mention just a few of those. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is great. I'm sorry, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is in the sea is his, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry ground. The dry ground. The rest of the verse go, or the, the psalm goes on to, to more of the same. Imagine the atheist trying to write something like that. Psalm seventeen verses twenty four through twenty eight. You remember as Paul stood on Mars Hill, and he spoke to those that were gathered together. The latter part of that, for in him we move and have our being, and as even certain of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Can you imagine, you know, back to verse 17, God that hath made the world and all things therein. The atheist wouldn't have written that. Going the wrong way again. The evolutionist, of course, didn't write it. Ten times in Genesis chapter 1, the phrase, after its kind, is given. After its kind. You know, this is, this is an agricultural area in Putnam County. We go through and we see all these fields of standing corn, beautiful stuff. We see sheep, we see goats, we see cattle, we see horses, 
we see farm fields. And everybody understands the seed principle. A lot of you have gardens. You go out and you plant crookneck squash. When it comes time to harvest, you don't go out there expecting better boy tomatoes, do you? Why not? Because the principle, the seed principle, we go all the way back to Genesis 1-1 to find out, or Genesis 1 to find out that each bears after its kind. Uh, cats and dogs don't breed. Why? Because they're of different kinds. You have a Great Dane and a, a German Shepherd. Yeah, they can breed and they can produce offspring. Why? Because they're of the same kind. But you understand that you breed a Holstein with an Arabian horse and all you're going to get is a couple of mad animals. That's all that's going to happen. It's not going to work. It bears after its kind. The religious man did not write it. In the prophets alone, 3,808 times, thus saith the Lord appears. Remember what Revelation 21 verse 8, the religious man writing this, thus saith the Lord. It would all be just a lie. And after reading that list of sinners, the whoremongers, the abominable, the, the murderers, the adulterers, remember that last two words, or more than that, and all liars will find their place that burns, or that burns in the lake of fire. That, that's just not what a religious person would do. And that's one of the weaker arguments that we have. We know that the Bible is the word of God because anticipation of its indestructibleness. Well, that's a big word, but it's very easy to understand. Most loved book in the world, this Bible. It's been on the New York Times bestselling list. It's the number one seller in the world but yet it's the most hated book in the world. Okay, a little bit. Men hate the Bible. Why? You know, when men hate other books, what do they do? They ignore them, and they go away. In the 1600s, a man by the name of Voltaire, a philosopher, wrote a book, and he thought the writing of that book would make the Bible pale in insignificance because he was a philosopher and he thought he was smart. But we know about the wisdom of men. Voltaire died, and you know, the printing press that he used to print his books on was purchased by someone else or it fell to someone else, and it was used to print Bibles for distribution to a hungry world that had not had the ability to read for themselves God's word. One of our own people of our past, John Payne, wrote a book, said that's going to relegate Christianity to the back dusty shelves of old libraries. Hardly ever hear about John Payne unless you're doing American history, but the Bible lives on and on and on. The Bible simply cannot be ignored. Why do men hate it? Because it, well, it just tells men who they are, what's going to happen to them, it can't be ignored. This book tells us 
that there is a heaven for those who will simply obey God, and there is a devil's hell for those who won't. And man simply does not like that. We know that the Bible is the word of God because of its unity of purpose. And again, I'm going quickly because there's so many that I want to talk about in so little time. The purpose of, God, uh, purpose of the Bible, if we looked at Genesis chapter 1 through Revelation, and we wanted to make one little line about what the Bible is all about, here's a good stab at it. The glory of God and the salvation of man through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now think about that. Yes, every book of the Bible has to do with this particular theme. The glory of God and the salvation of man through Jesus Christ our Lord. This wonderful and marvelous volume is made up of 40 different writers. And you notice I choose my word there very carefully, writers. It was written over a period of 1,600 years. It was begun by Moses in a desert of Arabia. It was completed by John on the island of Patmos. It was written by fishermen. It was written by farmers. It was written by shepherds. It was written by soldiers. It was written by kings. It was written in palaces. It was written in pastures. It was written in prisons. It was written in tents. Yet, well, it was written by educated as well as the uneducated person as well. Yet when it was all brought together, we find perfect unity. 1,600 years, widely dispersed in geography and culture, yet one united purpose is found through every page of this wonderful book. Long ago in the 80s, I had the opportunity to serve as a police officer. I worked accidents. One accident I have vividly in mind, I, it was a bad accident, a major intersection. I interviewed like 10 different people that saw the accident actually happen. You know how many stories I got about what happened? About 10. And then I had to try to sort through and figure out what actually happened with the other evidence that was there. But yet, when I talk about that, we compare to this book, and it wasn't the same day something just happened that was right there in these people's minds. 1,600 years to complete perfect unity that we're talking about here. I'm going the wrong way again. I'm going to learn this clicker. Why would we have perfect unity? Well, there was a singleness of mind, and it's that God is the author. That's just it. We know that the Bible is the word of God because of its brevity. For those that were in our class this morning, how much information do we have about Noah's Ark? How much information would you like to know about Noah's Ark? But yet, here is an event that every person in the whole world died except eight people. Can you, can you imagine? We, we have the Mississippi getting out of its banks and its wall-to-wall -wall news on CNN, on Fox, on MSNBC. You turn to one of those channels, that's all that's happening. And it's just the Missouri and it, uh, the Mississippi, the Missouri River, the Mississippi River, and it rained. 
We're talking about a global disaster that caused the death of every person in the world except those eight on the ark. And how brief the account is of that story. Can you imagine such things? In John 21 and verse 25, John writes about the life of Christ. And there, also, there are also many other things which Jesus did, and this is hyperbole. It's there for a purpose. It's exaggeration, and we know it, but it makes the point. If, the, if, if they, that is the things which Jesus did, should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Now, I want to illustrate this a little further. There's more to this. Do you realize that Luke summarizes the Lord's days from infancy to age 12? Now, we're talking about the Son of God. We're talking about Jesus the Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And Luke is the only one that touches this, and he records the life of Christ from infancy to age 12 in one verse, Luke 2 and verse 40. You realize that? We go on from that as well. Oh, we're going backwards again. <laughs> okay, one more time. From age 12 to age 30, we have one verse, Luke 2 and verse 52. You realize the brevity of the Bible? Anybody here read Alexander Campbell's works? Well, there was a man who loved words. I have several books in my library. One that is on, not by Campbell, but another one that is on just the life of Christ. And it's a volume that's this thick. And that's just part of what this person could have, read, could have written about this. But we have... From, age, from infancy to age 30 in two verses of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, and John record the Lord's life in less than an average of 35 pages. Two writers, you realize, don't even mention his birth. What do we do December 25th? What do we do from about July 15th until December 30th? All we see is Christmas decorations. Christmas sales start in, well, I was going to say November, October now. Christmas, 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 Christmas. And that's not even the Lord's birthday. But two writers don't even mention it. Is it a significant event? Oh, absolutely. We had to get the Christ into the world. But here it is. He's, he's not even mentioned in two of, the, two of the writers. John covers a period of 1,270 days. That's three and a half years, but he makes reference to only 30 different particular days out of 1,270. What did the Lord do the rest of those days? I want to know. I'd love to know. I'd like to have an encyclopedia that would cover this wall that would have every detail of everything that he did. But God chose a different way. He gave us brief and if it was up to man, that's not the way that it would be. The point is nowhere else is, is such significance combined with such brevity. You know, not long ago, Tammy and I were in Dallas, and we stood 
on the X that's in the middle of the street that's adjacent to the grassy knoll where some of you remember when President Kennedy was shot. Hinckley in the book depository right over there assassinated our president. You know how many books have been written on that? They would just about fill a library wall as big as bots behind me. But we have the life of Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Imagine just how that happens. We know that the Word of God, or the Bible is the Word of God because of prophecy made, prophecy fulfilled. This is one of the greatest ones ever. Prophecy was not a guess. It wasn't a speculation. It was not a statement of possibility. It was not just a prediction. And I'm going to stop here. The next time that OU plays Vol State, I will tell you who will win. And I'll guarantee it. Oklahoma, Tennessee shall defeat. I guarantee it. Now, I know some of you are thinking about that. If you've ever studied logic, you know that's an ambiguous, ambiguous statement. I could say it and mean the same thing the other way. Tennessee, Oklahoma shall defeat. I'm saying the same thing. Either way, the outcome is I'm right. It's ambiguous. Ambiguous. I'm sorry, I get the right word. That's not what prophecy's about. You remember in the, the, the tabloids in the grocery stores in years past, Jean Dixon and her ten prophecies for whatever year? You realize that she was good to get half of them right? And they were things that were already in the works and already in plans and other things. You didn't hear the next year about how many things Jean Dixon got wrong. You only heard about the next year's prophecies from Jean Dixon. The Bible's not that way. It's not just prediction. Prophecy was an unveiling of future beyond the possibility of the person seeing these things come to fruition. It was a divine message spoken long enough beforehand as to preclude the person speaking in bringing out the ability. You know, I could say something like, you know, there's going to be a terrible accident this morning going out of Pippin parking lot and me be the one that has maybe spread some grease or oil on one of the driveways and we know that. no that's not what these prophecies were at all well let's look a little further these were divine messages that contained sufficient number of details as to preclude guesswork or accident I know I'm out of time and I've got to hurry you know, the prophets gave 333 specific, distinct details regarding the life of Christ years and years and years and years before they came about. Every single one of them. Not just some, not most, not almost all. Every single one of them was fulfilled perfectly by Jesus Christ. Daniel's vision of the world empires, you know the story of the statue. Well, not only did he tell Nebuchadnezzar what that statue represented, but he told him what he dreamed. And Nebuchadnezzar said, yeah, I understand. You're telling me the truth. Now tell me what it means. And he did. You're the first king, Babylon. Medo-Persia is coming. The Greeks after that. 
and then the Romans. And in that fourth kingdom, there will be a kingdom that will be set up that will last forever. How did Daniel know that? There's no way he could. How about Isaiah's prophecy? Isaiah chapters 45, the last verse, into 45. Hundreds of years before it took place, before Israel was carried into, or I should say Judah was carried into Babylonian captivity, God, through Isaiah, told the people that a man by the name of Cyrus would do God's will and tell these people to go and build the temple. Can you imagine the scoffers at that time? There's the temple. It don't need to be built. They didn't understand that Babylon was going to invade and destroy it and carry people away into captivity. But yet, not only did he say there's a time when you're going to be coming back to rebuild the temple, but he called King Cyrus, king of the Medo-Persian Empire, who defeated the Babylonians. He called him by name. How did that happen? That's evidence. That is evidence. Prophecy concerning the Jews. Mr. Haley in his handbook says the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy placed alongside the history of the Hebrew nation constitutes one of the most astonishing and indisputable evidences of the divine inspiration of the Bible. Written hundreds of years before things happened, we see what happens to Israel through that period of time. Just as a review, how many books are there in the Bible? Do you know? Do you have to think about it? It should be real easy. Well, we know there's 66. How many books in the Old Testament? We know there's 39. How about the New Testament? There's 27. I'm going to give you a little easy way of remembering some things. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. That's the Old Testament. You have five books of law. You have five, uh, I'm sorry, 12 books then of history. When you get to the end of Esther, Nehemiah, Esther come kind of the same contemporary. End of Nehemiah, actually, Esther happens within the time frame of Nehemiah. You have come to the end of the Bible chronology. All the rest of the books plug in somewhere back in the other pages. Five books of the law, 12 books of history, five books of poetry, five books of minor, um, major, uh, major prophets, and 12 books of minor prophets. An easy way of understanding the Old Testament. The New Testament, 4 1, 21, 1. Four books, don't say four gospels, plural. How many gospels are there? There's only one. But there's four different accounts of that one gospel given from different perspectives to help different people understand what Jesus was all about. One book of history, the book of Acts. 21 epistles, don't tell me that the epistles are the wives of the apostles, that's not the way it is. 21 epistles, letters to different places or people about how to live the Christian life and the one book of Revelation, how to die as a Christian. That one wonderful book about future things talks about the victorious Christ and the victorious church and about us going to heaven. Question. Who is the author of the book of Hebrews? I will tell you exactly who the author of Hebrews is. You're scratching your head. Well, let's see. Some people say Paul. Some people say Barnes. Some people. No, 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 no. I'm not worried about who wrote the book of Hebrews. Who's the author? Okay. You know. Oops. One, one too. One too many. 
the author of the book of Hebrews is God. He wrote the whole book. God breathed. Perfect unity. Summation of this whole lesson, when we boil this down, this book tells us things beyond the scope of human ability. And again, I've just scratched the very tip of the iceberg. Read the book of Job and see Job's conversation with God where God asked Job questions. There are some of those questions our scientists can't answer yet. But it doesn't make any difference. Those were questions and then the answers that were given that Job had absolutely no way of understanding, no way of contemplating even the concepts of the question, much less the answer. And that gives us one word, credibility. The Bible is our witness. We have established credibility through all of the prophecies that are there, through all of the other proofs. And again, I've just scratched the very tip of the iceberg. We know that the Bible is the word of God. Now, by faith, we can do certain things. Where does faith come from? Hearing the word of God. We're concerned with evidence. We're told to prove all things. And God has given us sufficient, significant evidence to say, I know that the Bible is the word of God. Now, having established its credibility, we can then take on face value those things that it tells us. We know there's a Genesis flood. Why? The Bible says so. Well, what does that mean? We've established the credibility of this book. Nowhere else can you read such prophecy. Nowhere else can you read these things. This book was written by God or authored by God. We know that there's a heaven. We know that there's a hell. And we know that we can be Christians and go to heaven. One last slide and the lesson is yours. Last eve, I passed by the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring and the vesper chime. When looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so thought I, the anvil of God's word, the Bible. For ages skeptics' blows have beat upon, yet though all, through all the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammer's gone. We understand that this Bible is just what it claims to be, the all-sufficient, inspired, word of God we can believe it and we can go to heaven and that's what this is all about you may be here this morning and not a Christian I don't know if you're here this morning as as a visitor or as a member yet I know some of you but not all but it's going to be my great joy to get to know every one of you and over the coming months and years I hope to become just an integral part of this family with Tammy we want to go to heaven. 
and we want to help as many people get there too. If you're not a Christian this morning, you're not going. That's the bottom line. But you know, God, God sent his son into the world to die, to shed his blood for the remission of sins for those there in the first century, for us today, for those that will come. You have the ability to come this morning. And through your belief that generates the action of making the good confession, as Peter did, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. To repent of your sins, that is a change of mind that leads to a change of lifestyle. To be baptized for the remission of your sins. A dead man, dead in sin, or woman, buried, raised again to walk in newness of life. Have the ability that time with sins behind, forgiven, forgotten, to go to heaven. If you're not a Christian, ask yourself, why not? There's undisputable evidence that shows these things are true. You may be here this morning as a Christian that has not done those things or maybe done things that you're not supposed to. Let us pray with you and for you. If there's a need to respond, won't you come as together we stand and sing.